Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. A break with convention, three guests today. First, imminently, Joel Shalit will explore the rise of the far right in Germany. Then Marisol Lebron talks about the role of debt in impairing Puerto Rico's recovery from Hurricane Maria. And finally, Shauna Potter of the band War on Women will talk about being a feminist punk rocker. First, Joel Shalit. Joel's a frequent guest in Behind the News, but this time he's not talking about Middle East politics, but those of Germany, where he's been living for the past seven years. Joel is the author of Israel vs. Utopia. He's the editorial director of the webzine Susiant, and has just started as an editor at Dialogue of Civilizations, a grandly named think tank based in Berlin. Joel Schlitt. So how do you feel about having a right-wing party in the, the German parliament for the first time in 80 years? And I always love that comparison because 80 years ago it was the Nazis, so here we are repeating history in some unpleasant way, right? There were always far-right elements in German politics throughout the post-war period. Let's not forget that the, uh, the CDU and the CSU sheltered a lot of those people. It's just that the less rational ones fell afoul of the political establishment and tried to live in the open as neo-Nazis and neo-fascists. You have had a legal neo-Nazi party in the country since the late 60s. It's called the NPD. But what's different now is that the CDU has moved to the center left under Merkel. They're more of a social democratic and they're more of a green party than uh, than they've ever been. And um, that naturally caused an implosion of the conservative elements within the CDU, both in terms of uh, economic policy and cultural politics. And that's why we have alternative for Deutschland. You can't blame the CDU entirely for that, but the CDU is a much more liberal governing party than it was in the 90s or the 80s. And so naturally there there was going to be a right-wing challenge to it. It's just that nobody anticipated that there would be a neo-Nazi or explicitly Nazi party that would be the party to do that legally and constitutionally. That's what nobody anticipated. I'm very upset about it. But ever since I got here, there has been persistent, almost daily violence against minorities and refugees. The only difference between when I got here in 2010 with my family and today is that a successful political party got organized around that violence to represent that violence. You said Nazi, neo-Nazi. How explicitly neo-Nazi are they? How do they evoke the, the Nazi past? They do it in all kinds of different ways. There's the explicit racism of the Nazi period, for example, constantly attacking minorities, calling for refugees to be shot at the border. Most recently, Alexander Gauland, the co-leader of the IFD, advocated disposing of the uh, migration uh, minister who was of Turkish origin in Turkey. The hostility towards ethnic minorities and immigrants echoes the kind of explicit intolerance of the Nazi period. So you have that rhetorically on the one hand. On the other hand, you have explicit condemnations of German wimpiness, you know, and a call to end the culture of shame around World War II and the Holocaust amongst the more ideologically explicit neo-Nazis in the party and a, a return to the veneration of German war heroes. I could go on. There's lots of little things that are being said by the leadership. Otherwise, you have the typical racism, albeit amplified, of European populist parties 
um, such as the National Front and and Geert Wilders' uh, party in the Netherlands. You have constant statements to the effect that one of the national soccer stars of uh, of Germany is of Turkish origin. Uh, Ozil is his name, and he's regularly attacked for example, for doing anything that brings up his ethnicity or religious background. Kevin Boateng, the famous soccer player, was attacked. uh, He's of uh, uh, black African origin, um, was attacked by Gowlan in a very famous quote with Gowlan saying, nobody would want to live next to someone who looks like him, who's a real German. This is the way the discourse has evolved. And it's, its explicitness and its ferocity is new. Yeah, but there, there is a history. I think it was Helmut Schmidt who said, we Germans don't like the smell of garlic in our hallways. So <laughs> I guess there's some residents going back decades. That's the thing. I mean, the German political establishment until recently was able to capture all this energy and contain it while maintaining a modicum of, of liberal politics. It's only recently that it's become formalized. That's the difference. Um, and I think that that's what people on the radical left are saying is what's changed. This racism, is it, you know, the Nazis had a very explicit racial theory, a set of racial hierarchies, which they partly imported from the United States. But uh, is there anything like that with AFD or is it just, you know, the casual contempt? The AFD, depending on who you talk to, either espouses the typical contempt that you speak of or they make statements that sound like more explicit doctrinaire Nazi uh, statements of the past. Bjorn Hawk is, for example, an AFD leader uh, who often uh, uses phraseology and terms about racial hierarchy, for example, and ethnic superiority that are straight out of the 1930s. And uh, the big battle within the AFD, um, which led to the departure of, uh, of its uh, uh, leader, um, uh, Fraka Petri, last week, has largely revolved around how explicit the leadership was going to be in their Nazi sympathies. Petri left because she thought that the party had gone too far, right? But that's what Petri says. But Petri was one of the leaders of the surge to the far right within the party. So Petri's that's just a smokescreen. Why did she leave that? Internal party politics. Petri wanted to moderate the tone of the AFD so that the AFD could eventually assume power and sit in coalition most likely with the CDU. And the outspokenness and the allusions to the fascist past in the language and uh, statements of the current leadership mean that they'll never sit in coalition with the Christian Democrats and lead the country. They'll always be in the opposition. That's the point of view that uh, Petri has. Um, And Petri wants to be sneaky and get in from behind. And she probably will at some point. That sounds somewhat like Marine Le Pen trying to uh, sanitize the, the, the hideous racism of, fa- of her father. That's absolutely correct. And Petri looked at how badly Marine Le Pen did in the French elections. And Petri looked at how badly Geert Wilders ended up doing in the Dutch elections. And this was her strategy to avoid being marginalized. The current leadership of the party, there's, you mentioned Galland, who is, what, 76. There is um, an attractive former Goldman Sachs lesbian banker who is the co-leader half his age she is not the typical face of a fascist party what do you make of her i've written a bit about her and in, in your for your active and alice Weidel fascinates me to no end she is irrespective of her gender orientation she makes statements to the effect 
that she hates minorities, she hates Arabs. There was a uh, an email that got strategically leaked during the campaign in which she decried German society being taken over by Arabs, Roma, and Sinti. You know, the Roma and Sinti bit especially is very, you know, old-fashioned in terms of her hatred. Many people forget that the Roma and Sinti were, uh, you know, second on the Nazis' list after the Jews in the concentration camps. And uh, that was especially odious a statement. All that said, she represents the old fiscal liberals, so to speak, of the founders of the IFD, and she is tied to them uh, historically within the party. But she lives in Switzerland, and she has, uh, I believe, either a Tamil or South Asian um, woman partner. It's odd that she is so outspoken against multiculturalism and diversity in Germany, and yet she is a lesbian who lives in Switzerland and who worked for what many uh, on the right would say was a Jewish bank campaigning as co-leader of the IFD. It's a very complicated image that she's pushing forward. Goldman would like to present itself as you know, the, the avant-garde of capitalist multiculturalism. That's correct. And it seems very odd for her to emerge from, from that, that world. They never really quite worked out how they were going to explain what she was supposed to signify, except that she has sympathies for uh, the extreme right within the party that is explicitly racist and explicitly fascist and at the same time remains a neoliberal it's fascinating. She, she is, her contradictions are not reconciled, and I assume she was simply supposed to attract both sides of the spectrum. I'm speaking with the journalist Joel Shalit. What is driving this? You know, you go back to the, the 20s, the emergence of the Nazis. Germany was a country that was humiliated, defeated, broke. Uh, you know, employment rate was you know, sky high. On the surface today, Germany looks very much not like that. It looks you know, pretty prosperous by European standards, partly because they put everybody else through the ringer to their own advantage. Germany, is to the outside, doesn't look like a suffering country that would give rise to this kind of extreme, hateful politics. What's behind it? It depends on what part of the country you come from, Doug. I live in Berlin, and I live in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Berlin, and the poverty that I see is overwhelming. And so it's hard just to ascribe that poverty to, for example, the fact that most of my immediate neighbors are Kurds and Syrians and Turks, you know, who are systemically discriminated against in Germany for one reason or another, or who are poor simply because they're refugees and are just getting a handle on things here. I see a lot of very poor Germans. I live in one of the largest boroughs in Berlin. It's called Neukölln. It's in the south central part of the city, so to speak. It, it is not south central L.A. in comparison, though. Um, it is very poor. And, uh, you know, if I get out of my car, if I'm driving from here, for example, to Stuttgart, where my wife has worked for a long time, in any of the East German states uh, of the former uh, GDR, you sense a distinct cultural difference between yourself and the people around you that is predicated mostly around class issues. East Germans are a lot poorer than West Germans. A lot of East Germans feel that they have not prospered from reunification. They have not gotten anything out of democracy. They have not gotten anything out of the free market. And uh, if you look at the, the percentage of, of voters um, who backed the AFD in this election, the highest percentage came from the former communist states. And if you listen to and you talk to those people, as I wrote in my most recent piece for your active on the German elections, you know, 
they sound like they could be from Poland or Hungary. Their politics are completely different from people in the West. The Westerners treated them very badly in unification, right? I mean, I've, I, I've talked to a friend who uh, grew up in East Germany. He's been in the U.S. for 10 years. But you know, she has her father lost his job as a college professor because the West thought he, he didn't have the proper credentials. He was not a serious scholar. She said, by some estimates, a third of East German families broke up because of you know, the stresses of unification. And these wounds have not healed? Not at all. Not at all. And the governments of the last two plus decades have have pretended that uh, that unification went smoothly and that um, we can expect the same kinds of cultural attitudes and political attitudes from Easterners and as Westerners. The ignorance, the willful ignorance has been remarkable. And during that time, obviously, Eastern German society was in massive turmoil. The depopulation of the East has been very dramatic. Um, because people just can't make a living there, so they've moved west. And uh, if you look at the levels of racism and you look at the levels of anti-refugee sentiment in the eastern states, they're the highest in those parts of the east where the where cultural diversity is at its lowest. So obviously it doesn't take much to sort of figure out what's going on there. Um, and the IFD figured that out. And the IFD figured that out in order to leverage that anger and turn refugees and minorities into scapegoats that could build a successful party that could help them enter the Bundestag. And they were right. They ran a great campaign. They figured it out. But that doesn't account for the people in the western half of Germany who voted for the IFD. Not nearly as substantial a percentage, but, you know, for example, they got 15% of the vote in very wealthy Baden-Württemberg, you know, which has a green um, head of state. Why did it happen there um, as well? Denazification was never as total as people thought it was. There were always extreme right political sentiments in the western half of the country, too. Um, you know, uh, look at Bavaria. My God, Bavaria politically is, is in the Stone Age. You know, it's the Texas of Germany, uh, uh, politically speaking. It's wealthy, but it's very right wing, and it always has been. What ended up happening was that persons of, of continuous right wing political persuasion, and persons who were susceptible to neo-Nazi agitation in the, in, in the East got together and built the IFD. Um, and, and some German sociologists are saying, look, this is just a protest party. It's going to evaporate after a few years, because even though the, the, the leadership is neo-Nazi, the rank and file voters themselves are just protest voters who don't know what they're doing except voting against the implacable SPD-CDU coalition that seems to run the country in perpetuity and are deaf to class issues. I don't think so. I think the IFD are here to stay, and I think that their savviness in terms of maintaining their political base is much greater than that of the establishment parties, and they don't. the establishment parties are at a loss to figure out how to fight that. What about the SPD? Uh, you know, the, the Social Democrats created a low-wage labor market under Schroeder uh, 20 years ago. Uh, the, they've, they've acted like anything but a left party or a Social Democratic party. Uh, is that part of the problem? That's 100%. Uh, 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 you're absolutely correct. They created the foundation of the problem that the CDU-led government with the SPD has, uh, has built its economic policy on, and things have only gotten worse since then. There's a slow neoliberal grind um, that has continued under uh, the Merkel governments that built on what the Schroeder period created 
And, um, you know, Germans are absolutely, you know, freaked out about their pensions and whether they're going to have pensions they can live on when they get older. For example, you have the Hartz IV reforms that have been in place since the Schroeder period that are making people miserable. You have this phenomenon of mini jobs. A larger percentage of Germans are poorer than they used to be, despite the country's continued economic success. Germany continues to, as a country, save and save and save. And at the same time, they don't put money into schools. They don't put money into infrastructure. Um, it's, it's remarkable. I'll uh, give you a good example. Um, I live in the capital city of the richest and most powerful country in Europe. And yet I cannot take public transportation to work. And I work right near the Bundestag in one of the wealthiest parts of the city because the trains continually break down. And the city government doesn't have enough money to run a, uh, an underground train system or an overground train system um, that that can run consistently seven days a week, 365 days a year. It, you, you should hear Berliners complain about the lack of investment in the city's infrastructure. Sounds very familiar to New Yorkers. It's, it's worse. It's much worse. It feels very third world here compared to New York. And that says something. And I'm an ex-New Yorker. Farrah Fawkes has some pretty stark quotes from uh, the form, about to be former finance minister, uh, Schäuble, about how one of the reasons that they were squeezing Greece was to destroy the welfare state in Europe. Uh, they want the, Greece was you know, a, a stop in the road to crushing France. And then, you know, they just, he said, we can't afford the welfare state anymore. And it's got to come to an end. Is that sort of thinking like widely public in, uh, in Germany? That kind of thinking is widely public throughout the European left. What Varoufakis is saying is common knowledge and largely agreed upon um, amongst uh, uh, European left-wing activists and intellectuals, and not on the far left. Schäuble is considered a very dangerous and um, destructive person, and the Greeks were, as a whole, what Varoufakis said was something that the Greeks were hearing from Schäuble the whole time they were negotiating with him under the Syriza government. Uh, before Varoufakis left. The Greeks only capitulated because they had nowhere else to go. But they did this. They made a deal with the devil in order to survive. And unfortunately, uh, it took a left-wing government to make Schäuble's desires for the destruction of Greece's welfare state to happen. That's the way it works pretty often. I mean, what are we looking for uh, in the future? Obviously, AFD is not going to be in the government. Merkel is going to have to scramble to put together a coalition. But what, what do you expect uh, from the, the politics of Germany in the coming months and years? I think that the, the main thing we have to watch is, is how the AFD uses its new uh, position within the, the Bundestag and the funding it, uh, it receives from becoming an official part of the German parliament to further uh, extend its base. That's going to be the most interesting thing to watch. As far as the coalition is concerned that will emerge from the present negotiations, you know, you're going to have what they call a Jamaica coalition, most likely, which will be the Greens, the FDP, and the CDU. And the only liberal element within that will obviously be the Greens. This version of the Green Party being in government will be a lightning rod for right-wing and racist reaction because its co-leader is Turkish, Cem Ozdemir. Um, and uh, he'll exercise enormous influence in this forthcoming German government. So if, you're, if your main interest is in populism and neo-fascism, the interplay between Ozdemir and, and Alexander Gauland in the opposition is going to be amazing to watch. 
The other thing that, that is, of course, equally important, but less sort of colorful will be sorting out how this next government's fiscal policies further contribute to the, the popularity of extreme right politics in this country, particularly in terms of economic policy. Merkel knows, Merkel knows that poor people drove the IFD to victory. She's not stupid. I, there was a really good interview with her on, uh, in, on Deutsche Welle last week, and she made it clear, she offered a sort of a very sort of typically kind of undergraduate materialist analysis of what was driving the IFD's popularity. And if she's serious, even to that extent, they're going to have to reverse a lot of the neoliberal reforms of the last 20 years to keep center-right governments in power to the degree that they've remained in power for the last several decades. If not, we're going to get an off-day government in 10 years. That was Joel Shalit. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of a Femimania, a trans-positive song by War on Women, whose lead singer, Shauna Potter, we'll hear from in about 15 minutes. Next, Marisol LeBron. She's an assistant professor of American Studies at Dickinson College in Pennsylvania. LeBron had a piece in The Guardian the other day about the effect of Puerto Rico's enormous debt on the island's response to the savagery of Hurricane Maria, and how years of austerity made the damage worse than it had to be. Here's Marisol LeBron with more. Could you start by laying out the dimensions of the the Puerto Rican debt problem? How big is it, and how did we get here? Yeah, so the current debt crisis uh, has been in the works for a very long time. I think the way that the media in the United States has been kind of portraying it is that it came out of nowhere and just had this exponential growth, but it's been really growing for a long time. So we hear the number of $72 billion is currently what the Puerto Rican government uh, debt is, and that has occurred through the Puerto Rican government borrowing and borrowing and borrowing in order to keep up with infrastructural projects. There have been accusations of financial uh, malfeasance, um, and the response has been to say that Puerto Rico has shown itself basically unable to administer its own finances as a result of this debt crisis and impose a fiscal control board similar to, to what we see in Detroit and other localities that has complete control over Puerto Rico's finances. So what we're seeing right now with Hurricane Maria is really that the Puerto Rican government is unable to administer 
funds for recovery efforts. The Fiscal Control Board has allocated $1 billion uh, to go towards recovery efforts. The, the current estimate is at $60 uh, million it's going to take uh, for a full recovery for Puerto Rico. That, that's $60 billion. Or billion, excuse me, yes. And the electric grid alone is estimated to need $5 billion for repair. So we really see that this debt crisis is creating a situation in which Puerto Rico is going to not be able to have a, a kind of full recovery in many ways, the, uh, particularly coupled with the Trump administration's um, extremely slow response towards uh, requesting a full aid packet for Puerto Rico from Congress. In characteristic fashion, he's been boasting about the excellence of the response, but uh, that is just his usual hot air, right? Yeah, I mean, he was there today. I was actually just reading about this uh, uh, before before uh, our call here, and he said, he I don't know if he thought it was a joke, um, but he was complaining how Puerto Rico and the devastation there had essentially thrown the U.S. budget out of whack because now they need to uh, to help these Puerto Ricans rebuild. And I mean, this really speaks in general to how the U.S. Um, understands its responsibility to Puerto Rico and understands the, the relationship and responsibility that it has to Puerto Rico, that Puerto Rico is really seen as a fiscal and financial drain on the U.S., right? And I think that this is also a discourse that has become solidified in recent years, particularly as um, we learn more and more about the debt crisis, that Puerto Rico is, is positioned as fiscally responsible and taking and taking and taking. We would never imagine a U.S. president saying to the folks in Texas after Harvey, you know, you, you all are really throwing our national budget out of whack, right? And, and really saying that it is unfortunate that we as a nation have a responsibility to you um, and to help you recover. So I think that, you know, he's shown uh, absolute callousness um, in his approach um, throughout, and this it's shaping the, the lack of urgency that we're seeing on the ground, where now he's getting into Twitter fights with uh, the mayor of San Juan, uh, Carmen Yulín, over the f fantastic job that he's doing. And what we're hearing on the ground is, particularly if, if for folks who are outside of the San Juan area, is that FEMA and no federal aid and no local aid for that matter is anywhere to be seen. So we're seeing folks running out of ice, running out of food, um, limited to, you know, one 16-ounce bottle of water per day, um, folks having to actually drink out of natural water sources just because the aid has not gotten there. And so this myth that I think the Trump administration is trying to promote this spin that their response has been equal to what it was in Florida and, and Texas um, and that they're doing a great job is just not the reality that uh, the vast majority of Puerto Ricans uh, are experiencing. When a jurisdiction gets into that much debt trouble, there's always an underlying economic problem. When the debt crisis hits, 
the debtor is always blamed for irresponsibility, but the lenders are never, uh, never held to a very high standard. But Puerto Rico has some very, very serious underlying problems. Um, my friend Cesar Ayala has written a lot about how there's just been an enormous drain of resources out of the country because of, of foreign investment. And uh, is this, I mean, how, what's your analysis of why the, uh, the debt came to be such a problem? The emphasis on generating um, a foreign investment and really creating a tax haven for foreign investors, this has been, um, particularly with the collapse of the industrial model that you see in the mid-20th century, this has been Puerto Rico's MO for generating economic growth. And what we see is that it creates an uneven economy, right? So those kinds of financial methods of generating financial capital don't generate uh, jobs for people. So we see that the public sector explodes during this period and essentially starts to borrow against itself to keep up with infrastructure, although not to the extent that they should have, and to keep up with with wages. Um, Also, although there have been massive cuts also to public sector employment, but we start to see that that emphasis on foreign investment capital um, is one cause of the debt crisis that, uh, for sure, and another cause is actually what we've seen emerge with the hurricane, which is the Jones Act, which is that Puerto Rico is paying more for everything that gets there, right, because it has to come in on U.S. flagged and crewed ships. So energy costs are the highest that they are anywhere besides Hawaii in the United States. Um, It's a completely fossil fuel dependent economy. So all of infrastructure, so everything to fuel the infrastructure is coming in at exorbitant rates on these U.S. crewed ships. So these are some of the kind of colonial constraints and economic constraints that have been placed on the Puerto Rican government where they can't really administer their own finances. They're not able to negotiate their own trade deals. They're not able to um, develop their own economic policy without the consent of the U.S. federal government. Local government has been hamstringed in any kind of attempts that it's made to promote economic growth. Um, And we haven't seen a development model focused towards generating local industry and growth um, and not focused on really um, just getting foreign investors in and parking their money there, right, and not investing in the local economy. So I think there's a lot that is about what purpose Puerto Rico serves for the U.S. economy, where the U.S. economy is extracting tremendous um, money from Puerto Rico, and that money is is not getting into the hands of the people or the local government, and that's where we start to get the debt crisis accumulating as a means of just keeping the country going, right? They the drug industry in particular, right, took out billions in profits and left behind little but toxic waste. Yeah, yeah. So pharmaceuticals, um, in the 70s, we have the, the petrochemical industry, right? So we're seeing that there have been all of these kind of schemes to attract U.S. investment from everything from medical instruments in the 90s, right? And, and Puerto Rico just has, in many ways, over the past 20 to 30 years, lost its competitive advantage 
in comparison to many other countries. Um, and so what we're just seeing now is really um, the finance sector and banking, right? And so Puerto Rico, with these triple uh, tax-exempt bonds, which is what got it into trouble, right? That, that trying always to get foreign U.S. investment um, and to make Puerto Rico seem more attractive than many of its other uh, Caribbean neighbors that are also functioning as tax havens for for U.S. and global capital, right? Those schemes are precisely what what got it into into trouble. And all of these failed development schemes over the past 30 years have just left more and more people outside of the ranks of formal employment with stagnated wages and have have really just caused this this collapse that we're seeing now, which is getting exacerbated uh, as a result of the hurricanes. And um, this um, really flawed economic model, uh, did this contribute to the vulnerability of the infrastructure? Was it uh, easier to blow down? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the largest debt holders um, in the Puerto Rican public sector is its um, electric authority, PREPA. They were issuing bonds in order to... um, keep things afloat. They they were also under tremendous austerity measures once the debt crisis did hit, especially t- worsening since 2008 with the financial crash. We're seeing that PREPA and uh, also the um, aqueduct and sewer authority are not making the necessary um, infrastructural changes and improvements that they, they really needed to make. And so what has happened with after Irma and Maria, um, we've seen small previews of that for the past five years. Uh, a couple years ago, there was a fire at one of the um, power plants, and Puerto Rico goes dark for completely dark for three days. Um, Puerto Rico also a couple years ago experienced a severe drought that was worsened because the dams did not. Um, have the appropriate maintenance of what little water was accumulating in the dams, they were having massive loss, right? And so people were going weeks only having access to water, in some cases, depending on what region you were in, every other day or every two days, or if you were in some parts of the metropolitan area, one one to two hours per day. So these kind of um, infrastructural collapse that we're seeing, we've seen previews of it, right? So it's not unexpected that a storm of the magnitude that we saw with Maria completely decimated the the, the territory's infrastructure. Irma already had done enough damage, right? And it grazed the island to have knocked out power. And so we really see that that austerity that had been imposed on um, the public sector in Puerto Rico, and so on, on Prepa, on the, on the aqueducts, they were not able in any way to get the infrastructure where it would need to be in order to withstand a storm of this magnitude or in order to recover from a storm of this magnitude in a timely manner. And so that's why it's taking four to six months as opposed to days to repair and restore electricity to the whole territory, right? And I think that that's something that for us in the mainland United States is unimaginable to have uh, 3.5 million people. Puerto Rico is a territory that has a larger population than 22 U.S. states to imagine 
any one of those states going for four to six months with no electricity and nobody really seeming too troubled by that, right? The scale at which this is happening is unimaginable. From what I know about American politics, it seems very unlikely to me that Puerto Rico is going to get anything like $60 billion. Uh, So what is going to happen? Will there be a, a vast exodus to the mainland? Yeah, I think that that's one of the things that we're definitely going to see is a huge um, exodus, um, mainly because people can't go to school, people can't work, people's houses are destroyed, and people don't want to stay for four to six months with nothing. You know, they're not really seeing a response that is reassuring uh, that things are going to get resolved quickly and in an efficient manner. So I do think that we're going to see a massive um, influx of of folks from Puerto Rico to the mainland. I think that some of the other things that we really have to be attentive to are attempts to privatize the the public infrastructure because those were underway long before uh, these hurricanes. The local government as well as the federal government have been making attempts to privatize PREPA and some of the other public authorities for years um, and with increasing frequency in the past couple of years, especially with the imposition of the Fiscal Control Board. That is one of the things that the Fiscal Control Board is very interested in. So that's something that I think folks are very worried about, um, that what has happened with the hurricanes is really going to give uh, opening for those interests to get what they want at the expense of um, the public sector, which is one of the largest employers on the island. So this is something that folks are really worried about when already folks are going to be out of work for months, what's going to happen to them if some of these industries are, are privatized. I was Marisol LeBron, an assistant professor of American studies at Dickinson College in Pennsylvania. It's absolutely appalling that three and a half million people could be left in darkness for months and that the clowns and brutes who run our government don't seem to care. And now a sharp transition of subjects. A few weeks ago, I played a song by the band War on Women on the show. The band's lead singer, Shauna Potter, found out about this and got in touch with me and volunteered for an interview. I thought that sounded like a great idea, so here she is, Shauna Potter. I hate to say this because I love it so much, but rock and roll does seem a bit... I don't know, antique? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) How does it feel to be doing something that, you know, uh, I think some people see as passe? You know, what's passe is kind of the old versions of what people were rebelling against with rock and roll. You know, it's I'm sure it didn't start as a bunch of like rich, long hair, white dudes in spandex, obviously. So I think we're kind of getting back to the roots of rock and roll, which is true rebellion and not chicks and drugs and money. Um, and right now, unfortunately, there's nothing more status quo to rebel against than someone in power, a white man who golfs every weekend that has admitted to sexually assaulting women. That's the normal for our, our country right now. So we do everything we can to stand up against that and to support women and femmes and LGBTQ folks in any way that we can. And I don't think that is passe. I don't think that is tired because it's there's not enough of it rock and roll has long been and i think this is especially kind of true of punk a boys club um at least there's you know something about the aggression uh there's a phallic thrust to a display and especially punk with the aggressiveness uh which is always more foregrounded than say love songs how do women navigate uh in in that kind of landscape well i mean to be fair every single part of my life is male dominated 
everything that anyone does, especially, you know, again, I can only speak as a white woman in America, but everything we do is male dominated. Everywhere we go is male dominated. So the fact that my personal creative endeavors or passions happen to be male dominated, that makes total sense to me. So what I have really done with maybe, maybe it's just from age or education, um, educating myself on issues, you know, at some point you just say like, I don't care anymore. I want to do this. And fortunately with punk and, and rock music in general, you can, you can just make your own music. It's not like there's, um, a degree that I have to get to make punk music, you know, and play shows. Uh, what's difficult is actually achieving any success with it or, or, um, being taken seriously in that world. And so, but again, there's just kind of this attitude, which I think falls right in line with what punk is of just saying like, I don't care what you think I'm going to do this anyway, because it's what I want to do. What inspired you? What got you going? It's, uh, there, there are not all that many women who uh, get up on stage and scream. What gave you the idea you could do it? Growing up, I was the only child of a single mother. And so I absolutely believed I could do anything. And I'm definitely of that generation where parents were telling their kids, you can do anything you want to do. And they kind of forgot to tell us that we have to work hard also <laughs> to, to get there. <laughs> but I could be anything and I could do anything. And so it took a while for me to realize that society didn't feel the same way. Society didn't think I could do anything or that I should do anything. So um, I don't know. I, yeah, at some point, I just realized it's what I want to do. And, you know, since punk is really about like, we started out playing loft spaces and basements and punk clubs, like, no one there is going to tell me not to like, those are actually the places with probably the most diversity, right? And the, that are the most welcoming to people that aren't old white men. Um, so that that was very easy to to explore that world and and um, start playing music. And, you know, I've always been loud. I've always been chatty. I, I was in theater when I was a kid. Like, I've always wanted to be on stage. And after being in all kinds of different bands and, and, and trying different things, you know, at some point, um, my guitar player Brooks and I, we'd been in bands before, but at some point we were both just kind of fed up with the idea that people weren't talking about women's rights enough in music. And we just wanted to do, we wanted to do something that we cared about that meant something to us. And it just so happened to be the band that got the most success that we've been in, which I think says something about how necessary women's voices are right now. Any particular performers or figures that, uh, inspired you? I think when I was young, if I'm being honest, Courtney Love was the first image I saw of a, of a woman kind of claiming uh, the right to be angry and having her own kind of power that actually could be feminine too. And I think that's what, that's where people get hung up is they, you know, they wonder like, oh, what's it like to be angry or something? And, and it's like, I'm a human being. I, I have like, I have all the same emotions you do. And anger is an emotion. And it's, it's a part of the fabric of who we are as human beings. And right now, there's so much to be angry about. So, you know, seeing someone claim that for themselves and still wear a dress, I was like, oh, you can... And, and I'm not personally a dress wearer, but the point is like you could be a woman and be angry and say so. And so I think after that, I got really into the slits and, um, you know, Grace Jones is an amazing performer. And and, uh, you know, there's a lot of lot of women um, that 
break down boundaries and and who are truly authentic. And they don't often play like heavy punk music like we do, but they're no less inspirational. And and the thing is, like, they don't necessarily get enough attention. Like they're out there. They just don't get mainstream attention. I hear the name Slits. There's music to my ears. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, such an inspiration. Like that, honestly, listening to the Slits was the first time I realized that the voice could be an instrument, the same as a guitar or like drum set or something. And I realized you could do more than just sing, you know, love songs. And uh, it was really, it was really cool getting into them when I was growing up. But a lot of people find uh, women's aggression and anger very um, destabilizing. Off-putting, yeah. Yeah, do you, do you get a lot of uh, bad reactions for that? Luckily, no one's going to come to one of our shows and not know sort of what they're in for, you know? But I remember starting the band and um, uh, other band members talking to their friends and saying, like, hey, we're, we're playing a show. Do you want to come out? And, and, and their friends saying, no, I don't know. You guys are just really angry. I don't get it. And they listen to really heavy bands with men singing about their anger but they just couldn't get down with a woman's voice that was also angry. So it's just something people aren't used to. But the only solution, I think, is exposure. It's just more women being angry, <laughs> which I'm all for. Anger is an energy, as the man said. <laughs> but some political music can be really earnest and dull. You're anything but. Why do you think that is and how do you avoid it? Well, look, I went to Lilith Fair just like everybody else did, but I got bored I got bored and I always resented the idea that somehow women playing music had to be like this folky or piano based, chill, non-threatening kind of music because it's just not it's just not true. So I want I don't know. It, it was a conscious decision for sure. Like I haven't always played music this heavy and loud and fast and angry um, because I, I do consider myself kind of cr- a creative type in general. But I really thought it was it was so important to to have the 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 style of music kind of match the theme and the anger that we're experiencing. I didn't want it to be like foggy little guitar songs talking about like, you know, rape and sexual assault and abortion rights. Like it just didn't make sense to me. So I don't know. I really resent the idea that um, women have to play one kind of music um, or sound a certain way. And that also translates to. You know, we all we've all heard Evanescence, so it's supposed to be angry, but she's singing like operatic over it. Those of us in the punk world, we've heard bands that I, I don't want to shame. I won't name them or anything, but bands were basically like it sounds to me like the women are copying the way that men sound when they're yelling, you know, like they're doing an impression of some man doing some inflection in his voice that's trying to sound really angry or whatever. And I, I just thought, you know, like, I don't want to do that either. I want to sound like myself. And that means not sounding like, you know, Sarah McLaughlin, but also not sounding like, you know, the dude in hate breed either. So I guess there's a cliche that women are supposed to, you know, sing about their feelings as if anger weren't a feeling. Exactly. That always tears me up. Maybe it wouldn't work for you, but if some dude is getting really, really angry and you say, stop being so emotional, like they will freak out. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, you're supposed to smile and make everybody else happy. Yeah. And finally, what is it like to be a young band these days getting established? You know, back in the old days, you know, the Holy Grail was getting a record contract, big tours and the economics of the music business are much different now. Like, you know, you get a few pennies out of Spotify if you're lucky, but, um, so how do you get established? What do you do? 
Well, it it is very difficult. And anyone that gets into playing music thinking that they can make a living off of it is playing a fool's game. It's a very elite club. Um, most of the successful bands I know and I'm friends with, they have jobs they go back to when they're not on tour. So most people, most bands are breaking even or, or making some money by just playing live music. They play live shows. So people going to live shows, paying money at the door, buying merch, buying our shirts and our records at our shows is still the best way to get money in our hands. Um, it goes straight to us, all of it versus most of it going to Spotify or Pandora or whatever. So it's funny. It's funny to say, like, what do young bands do now to get noticed? Because in a way, we're a young band, but we're not young people <laughs> in a band. We've all been playing music for for decades. Um, we've seen firsthand all the changes that have occurred, you know, from the Internet sort of starting up to, to today. There are no rules that are the same as they were back in the 80s and 90s that are the same now, like your guess is as good as mine in a weird way. Things take off, they go viral, you make some money, but then maybe no one cares the next day. It's a really strange time to live in. And that's why you kind of just can't count on it. You can't count on music to pay your bills. And so as long as you have a backup plan, you can keep doing what you love creatively um, without being resentful or sad. But you can't rely on a record label. You can't rely on (laughs) anyone honestly, other than yourself. But what's cool is that, and I had this conversation recently with with a bunch of upcoming artists and women involved in music um, for a piece in the New York Times. Uh, We were talking about how platforms like Bandwagon, I'm sorry, (laughs) platforms like Bandcamp.com, what they do is actually level the playing field so that instead of this one A&R guy from New York coming to your show and being sort of the gatekeeper on on who gets to release a record, period, now anyone at home can, can record some music, write a good song, record it, release it, and maybe achieve some amount of success and, you know, financial stability, through through this through a streaming platform whereas before you know they're living in ohio or you know montana and no one would hear them no one's going to come to their show no no new york and our guy's going to come to their show uh out there so it's kind of cool that that the playing field has been leveled a bit um which opens the door for people of color uh for women for trans folks for undocumented folks you know not just dudes that other dudes like I was Shauna Potter of the Baltimore-based band War on Women. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Second Wave, as in Second Wave Feminism, goodbye from that band. Till next week, bye.